Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Mental Golf Show. As always, I'm your host, Josh Nichols. And on today's episode, we've got part two of our re-release of my all-time favorite episode of the podcast. It's from the very first conversation I had with Raymond Pryor titled Golf Beneath the Surface, which was released back in February of 2022. Again, this conversation was formative for me because it completely shifted my focus from the surface level mental game that we read about and hear on social media, shifted it to deeper level psychology that actually gets at the heart of the issue. And it's the way that I believe we should all be addressing our own improvement. Rather than jumping from one quick fix to the next, instead taking the time to address what's at the heart of our struggles. As Pryor says, patiently and systematically working on something might be a slow road, but it's still the fastest road to sustainable change. So I hope you learn as much as I did in talking to Raymond Pryor. I think you can even hear how I'm being challenged on my own thinking during this episode. So I encourage you to take some notes and commit these things to belief. But before we get into this episode, if you feel like you need one-on-one work on your mental game, that's what I do. Yes, I host this podcast, but my actual occupation is working with players all over the world on their golf psychology. If you like these episodes of the, golf, of the Mental Golf Show, this is the exact type of stuff that I work on with my players. So if you would like to take the next step to improve your mental game, then send an email to mentalgolfshow at gmail.com, or you can visit my website, joshnicholsgolf.com. Or if you'd like a less formal intro to mental coaching, you could take the Mental Game Assessment. It's a 15-minute questionnaire that my instructor, Robert Linville, and I created together that will give you your mental strengths and your biggest area for mental improvement. It's a great resource to start working on your mental game. And the best part is it's free. We recently passed the 1,000 assessments taken mark, which is incredibly awesome to say. These assessments are hand-generated by us, each one of these and we send them back to you. We hand send them back to you. We, we individually take your assessment, create it, and send it back to you in an email. So to, to have done that over a thousand times, I think we're kind of close to the 1200 mark now. That's crazy, that's so cool. So thank you to everyone who's taken the assessment. I encourage you to go take it. The link to the assessment and everything that I mentioned will be in the show notes of this episode. All right, let's jump into the middle of the conversation between myself and Raymond Pryor. Hope you enjoy. Speaking the truth to yourself, like not lying to yourself. Your your brain, you can't lie to your brain. Your brain knows what's up. Yeah, not just our brain, but also I would just say to like, however you want to say it, maybe our soul, our essence, or whatever, like confidence comes from a credible inner dialogue. So if we are lying to ourselves, I mean, we're essentially undermining our own confidence. Like imagine how much you would be confident in someone who you knew was lying to you. Doesn't work out that way. Right. Um, so it, we have to tell ourselves the truth, but sometimes the truth is not what we want to hear. But even though the truth might hurt us sometimes, and the hurt might be some level of emotional discomfort, like, whoa, actually my odds of getting through this successfully are not as good as I wish they were. That truth can hurt. But that's what allows the truth to set you free. Because when we embrace our current reality, we can deal with it better. When we lie to ourselves, that's us trying to avoid our current reality. That's a big clue for us to be like, hold on a second. 
a player comes to you and is wondering how to move on from a bad shot. This is like, I mean, it's super surface level. It's super symptomatic. It's, um, but it's just the most common thing I hear. Like, you know, in a lot of first sessions, I've heard you talk about your first session and how it's just kind of laying the groundwork. I'll say, what do you want? Like, what do you, what is your biggest issue mentally that you want to get over? And they're just like, I just want to be able to move on from bad shots. And I know that's like, okay, there's three layers below that, but someone comes to you and says that, what do you say back to them? Um, I would, I would want to hear a couple of examples about what that looks like for them and what they are experiencing in that. I'd want to know what their inner dialogue sounds like when those things happen. Um, I would also ask the question, what's keeping you from moving on from shots faster, right? Because to me, that sounds like, um, to me, that sounds like an issue with acceptance. And by issue, I mean, a la- like a lack of acceptance about things that have happened, um, especially things we don't like, right? It's easy for us to accept things in the past that worked out for us and we feel comfortable with and we like. It's harder to do that with stuff that we don't. Um, so I would want to know a little bit about that. And then also there's probably that response is just a habit and you'd probably below the surface really means addressing that thing as a habit. So habits are just us, you know, we learn just like every other animal on the planet, there's an event, our response to it. And then there's some type of reinforcement positive or negative. You know, if we're talking like really basic psych terms, that's trigger behavior reward and dwelling on a mistake is actually a pretty rewarding experience for us. And by rewarding, I mean, it feels good to our brain for the purpose of yeah, for human beings. One thing that's really, really reinforcing for us is the feeling of I'm doing something right. So instead of just sitting idly by and letting things happen to me passively, I'm stepping up, I'm doing something. In this case, if I get angry and I dwell on this mistake, that'll make me do better and not produce it again in the future. And what's really important about it is that's a really reinforcing thing. That's why people get angry. That's why they stay frustrated for a long time. It's not because they're angry people. It's because that response has been reinforced for them over and over again. Same with a harsh inner dialogue. If every time I make a mistake, I crush myself internally, I'm being reinforced by the feeling of I'm motivating myself to quote unquote do better, right? That's a very motivating feeling for human beings where we have to step back and look at that as kind of a habit and look at it mindfully is, we have to ask ourselves, one, what does it make you feel in that? Because there, here's our direct experience coming in. So first of all, we need to be aware of that habit and be able to see it as a habit. Two, what does it make me feel? Like, what's my direct experience? Because bottom line is dwelling on a, ha- on a mistake and making that a habit doesn't feel good. And the second part is we got to ask ourselves, and this is not like an intellectual exercise, like, what do you get from this? And what we get from it is, I'm now not in the present for my next shot, which makes it more difficult for me to deal with my current reality. Two, it makes me more likely to make another mistake, which means now I'm not just carrying one mistake, I'm carrying two. So I'm just increasing the load that I'm carrying from the past. It typically destabilizes confidence. It creates anxiety in the future. Like just this laundry list of stuff that like not helpful for playing golf, right? And then what we have to do is be able to look at like, okay, here's what you're getting from this response and this habit. How does that relate to what you would like to play golf like? Because just telling someone don't dwell on a past event when their brain has an ingrained habit of dwelling on past event is not going to change it. 
because the bottom line is their brain is getting exactly what it thinks it's getting from that response every single time. You know, the term in psychology, if we're talking neurology, is reward value. Reward value is the value that our brain thinks it's getting from a behavior. And as long as it's getting what it thinks it's getting, it's going to keep that in what's called set it and forget it mode. Set it and forget it mode is our brain goes, here's a habit. Parts of the brain that are all about like thinking rationally and clearly and creatively, you don't worry about this. I'll take care of this, the survival portions of our brain so that you can go learn other stuff. And so as long as it's in set it and forget it mode and your brain keeps getting the reward that it thinks it's getting from that, not going to change. You have to actually show your brain, this is what you're doing. This is what you're getting. And then how does that compare to what I want? And then at some point you have to be able to, once you have established that for your brain, provide a better option. And in this case with dwelling on mistakes, it's most likely to be some type of better option in the form of acceptance. And what's great about acceptance is it feels a whole lot better to our brain than dwelling on stuff that has already happened. And that's important because our brain likes things that feel good. And what it does is we have to also understand beneath like accepting it is the best way to deal with it going forward, not punishing yourself for it. So again, you're almost kind of counteracting that ingrained response of, well, I'm doing something about that mistake. No, you're not. acceptance is this I mean you've heard me use this word a bunch it is so important for us psychologically to understand acceptance keep in mind acceptance doesn't mean I like it doesn't mean I'm satisfied with it doesn't necessarily mean I'm comfortable with it also doesn't mean that I'm resigning myself to well this is my fate forever it means this is what I am currently experiencing and I'm accepting it without preference which means I'll deal with it as is is one of the key markers for people who are psychologically healthy and psychologically high performing. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's like choosing broccoli over candy. It's not, it's not what you want, but it's going to be better for you in the long run. Totally. And by the way, there's a reason that we prefer candy to broccoli and it's not the reason that we think the reason we prefer um, candy to broccoli is because it tastes really sweet. And for our brain, sweet equals more calories. So 10,000 years ago when we were cave people, those calories meant more survival. So we would have taken candy as opposed to broccoli because it would have actually helped us survive longer. But now we have to, and by the way, 10,000 years ago, if you dwelled on a mistake and it helped you not make that same mistake in the future, you survived longer. Hence why we do it. But we don't live in that world anymore. And so sometimes we have to use how our brain is designed to also show it you can thrive and not just survive. Hmm. So in the scenario of like you have a time machine and you could go back and do something, it wouldn't be like stop Hitler. It wouldn't be do this and that. It would be go teach those cavemen that their psychology is wrong and we're going to be dealing with this for thousands of years. (laughs) I don't know that I would have taught it was wrong because if you taught them it was wrong, then we wouldn't be alive. That's a good point. (laughs) Probably preferred to stop some horrible historic events. Because the bottom line is just because it's difficult for us with our survival style brain to be able to thrive doesn't mean we can't. In fact, if we understand it and train it, we can. I mean, humans are capable of doing amazing things. And I mean, every human being. It's just difficult for us at times because our brain is designed to keep us alive first. And that's not a bad thing. If you took out the survival portions of your brain, we would be dead very quickly. Because one, we wouldn't perceive any threat and we would do all kinds of things that are super dangerous we get injured and dead very fast or we wouldn't 
remember similar situations and triggers that were threatening. And we would do those dangerous things over and over again until we ended up dead. So we wouldn't survive very long. We can do both. Sometimes we're just swimming against the, the stream of our survival um, design. Not necessarily a bad thing. What I, If I had a time machine, though, with a lot of people, I would love to go back to the moment where that survival brain created a core belief and a habit. And then that starts to be reinforced over time. You know, even if you're thinking about just growth mindset and fixed mindset, there's a point for everybody where their current ability hits like the point where they can't move up the learning curve if they don't start working harder and working smarter. I would love to go back to those moments for a lot of people because which direction you take typically determines which mindset you start to develop and how it gets reinforced. If I had a time machine, I would go back to those moments, but we don't have to. We can just because it happened in the past doesn't mean we have to do it uh, in the future. If we, again, if we understand it deep enough and then also have the information to be able to do the things necessary to make change. And, and because things are habit and our brain is so can be grooved that way, you can use that for your advantage. You don't have to only reap the disadvantages of it, right? Absolutely. So just because, so we can, we form many very productive habits, but also some unproductive habits if we're defining productive and unproductive toward thriving and health, so to speak, right? But the same ways that like, if you had a habit of dwelling on past mistakes, you can develop the habit of accepting past mistakes and it, your brain will learn it and reinforce it in the same way where that now becomes your new default setting habit. It happens for many people, myself included. In high school playing soccer, if I made a mistake, that was almost it for the day for me because all I did was, well, I can't believe I made that mistake, but da, 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 right? And a deeply reinforcing habit because if I crushed myself for that mistake and dwelled on it, I felt like I was, well, that means that's what good players do. They crush themselves for mistakes. That's the standard they have, et cetera. And if I'm telling myself by crushing myself for a mistake, that means I'm a good player. Of course, it's going to be reinforced. My new habit now for mistakes, which I'm like anyone else, make mistakes all the time, is to accept, yep, that happened. Can I learn and let go? Yep, also can do that. But that doesn't happen overnight. That comes from addressing the habit at its source and giving ourselves a better option over and over again until that becomes the default setting. And it, it takes a little time and it takes some intention to do so, but you'd be surprised how quickly we can change habits. And then the other reason it's hard to change habits is because as you're talking about like neurologically, neuroplastically, like we're, the more we do something both external or internal, physical or mental, the more it grooves pathways in our brain, like these myelinated um, neural connections that are designed to make habits faster and quicker. And we've got to be able to give enough time for those uh, neural pathways to restructure. So you've talked about self-awareness and how that's super important. It's like one of the keys and one of the starting points to, to fixing any of these things. If anyone wants to hear you talk about self-awareness, they can go to the Be The Right Club today. You can hear me talk about it. But I, what I want to hear you talk about is I kind of want to be devil's advocate. So you, you think of players like... I'll just throw him out there. Dustin Johnson. He doesn't seem super self-aware. Just our view of him. Or players like that. They just they they seem like they're just on autopilot, just hitting the ball, not really giving it much self-reflection. And they're just on they're just going. So it is that an argument against self-awareness? Or like should we all just try to be blank inside? Is that the ideal spot? What do you think? Well, humans are all different. 
And I would also argue that players that look very tranquil on the outside may not be tranquil on the inside. And also, maybe even if they are, that's not an indication that there's no self-awareness. That might be an indication of immense self-awareness, right? So if you're talking Dustin Johnson, again, I don't think it's a really great idea to try to dive and assume about people's psychology. But I would bet my house that Dustin Johnson's level of self-awareness is immensely high. And one of the things that he is aware of is, I don't play good golf worrying about stuff, dwelling on stuff, and overreacting. That is an immense level of self-awareness. And I, can't, I cannot emphasize how important self-awareness is or just awareness in general for the simple reason that on a brain level and a mind level, awareness is the first step to information processing. So if we're not aware, we can't process information we are not aware about. And also the type of awareness we bring to something, meaning kind of like, is it a judgmental awareness or is it a more accepting awareness? also determines how we process that information. Hence why mindfulness as a practice and as an understanding is so valuable because you are addressing the first step of information processing for us as human beings by being aware of it in the first place. And two, developing the type of awareness that allows us to process that information internal and external in real time in the present moment and without judgment. And, if, and that allows us not just to be present while we're actually competing. That type of awareness allows us to process the information in our habits, in our core beliefs, in our thought patterns. We call this perseverative thinking, which are these persistent thought patterns that go on to be able to be aware of the changes in our body and our sensations when we get nervous versus when we get anxious. Without developing that, I mean, it's really difficult to be able to perform consistently because you're basically hoping that the stars align situationally and internally for you to be able to perform well. So when I see someone like a Dustin Johnson or a Colin Morikawa and people where we go like, they're, they're just not aware. They're just hitting it. They don't care about. No, I don't think so. I would be, if Dustin Johnson told me, I just don't care. I don't even think about stuff. I'm not aware. Like I would be like, I would be shocked. Yeah. You would lose your house. <laughs> I would lose my house. I don't know to who, but somebody would come in. <laughs> Right. Okay. So something I've, I've always been interested in is the, the mental side, the performance psychological side is, is notoriously intangible. It's hard to, it's hard to put numbers to in a lot of ways. I mean, you could, you could get EEG machines, there's bands you could put on your head, there's things like that, but just on a, on a average amateur golfer level, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to track mental game improvement, you know, in most people's minds. How, how do you think about tracking mental game improvement, like making it into a tangible statistic? Um, that's a really good question. So, by the way, there are some studies happening right now where they are trying to at least put some type of metric to. And then the difference here is that we're looking at like these are people that are doing certain what we call psychological training or mental training and people who aren't and seeing how that compares. The difference is you could develop a really robust, strong psychological framework without doing mental training. Again, it would be kind of the odds, like kind of the pachinko machine where everything just kind of to fall in line, or we can do it, um, you know, more intentionally. So difficult to measure. I think the better measures are in our direct experience. As much as I would love to say, here's mental training, here's strokes gained. Um, we're not really sure how to do that yet. But if you're 
telling me a player comes off the course and goes, you know what? I saved myself three strokes today because I didn't lose it when such and such happened. Those things matter. And our direct experience is, uh, is really important to that. Right now, that's our most, um, essentially what we're looking for is, is there behavior change, right? And I don't know how you put a metric on that, but you can track that behavior change. Quite simply, you know, being present and not being present, and I'm present more often because I know how and I'm able to recognize what I'm not is a significant behavior change. Somebody observing a mistake, but then being able to move past it in a credible way is a significant behavior change. Somebody developing the confidence that goes, I'm not, I don't need to feel comfortable on the first tee to be able to swing freely is a significant behavior change. And you'll know it when it happens. Doesn't necessarily happen fast. It doesn't happen all the time, but it will happen more consistently and in the times that are more important when you do the work. And as much as I would love to be able to go, okay, here's my services. They're worth this many strokes gained. It's different for different people. Um, but your clients will tell you. Like, And if you're doing um, consistent reflection of your rounds and your performance, you are also going to start to see that. And then in which case, then you can kind of, kind of put a metric to it. Yeah, and self-reported confidence and self-reported, uh, you know, acceptance and presence is as good as anything. If if they feel better, it's great. And the and the other thing is, you could track how that impacts their scores. If you are a aspiring college golfer in high school and you go from shooting seventy-five to averaging seventy-two as you've done your mental training, if that's not the only thing, you know, hopefully you're practicing well, you got your equipment right, you've been you're working on your core strategies. Like, you know, our psychology is one of the many factors in influencing our performance, but all those other things are contingent upon how confidently and how present can you play. And so if you do that better, everything else will get better. You know, I had a, a player that I was talking with last week where they, you know, my, I know my confidence is more stable because I feel this, I feel this, I feel this, but also I'm just making more clear decisions on the course because I'm not, I'm not making decisions out of anxiety. Right. And that's that's a tangible change. Difficult to metric, but um, not intangible, like feeling different, thinking different, making different decisions, being in a more present time frame is not intangible. It's very tangible. We can feel it directly. Mm, well said. I want to talk about perfectionism for a sec. Um, perfectionism has a negative connotation as it's it's going to cause you to over over-prepare, overdo things, um, and, and ca can cause tension and, and cause all those kind of things, but there's good side of perfectionism. What do you think about perfectionism and whether it's good or bad? Yeah. Perfectionism is intensely valuable on the low end of the learning curve, because if you apply a little bit of effort and sometimes, you know, more effort and continued effort, like you're going to get better. So you're going to see progress as you're working toward, uh, as you're working, as you get closer to the top of the learning curve, it becomes far less valuable simply because the window for success is already small and perfectionism by definition, there's none, right? It, it can be valuable. It's super motivating. Like people who are perfectionists work really, really hard. The downside is it is almost guaranteed to create anxiety and burnout as it goes on longer. For the reason being, if I give myself zero margin for error for success and failure, the other downside of uh, perfectionism is that we tend to describe those failures as absolutes, was or wasn't. 
and we miss all this middle ground. So even just in terms of processing information and learning, perfectionism limits that because we're not able to see the spaces in between as much. We get kind of blinded, like either I was perfect or I wasn't, and we don't see everything else in between. And that really limits our ability to learn. The second is as we get under pressure or playing in meaningful or competing in meaningful environments, that tiny window to be able to tell yourself is successful is an added self-imposed unnecessary sense of constriction that makes it harder for us to compete because it's not just, well, how do I figure out how to score? It's I need to do it and I have to be perfect doing it. Or I have to be perfect in order to do that, in which case then it essentially is guaranteed to destabilize confidence under pressure, right? So it can be really valuable in some situations, but you'll know it's past the point of diminishing returns when it starts to create anxiety, when it starts to diminish our ability to learn, and ultimately when it starts to create um, a sense of burnout. And the burnout comes from, I am always missing this tiny, tiny perceived, if not, not margin for error that I've created for myself. And when I do, I tell myself, well, that means I can't score that. Like we create these consequences from it and you don't have to do that for too long or be a psychologist to understand that then golf becomes a pretty aversive experience. And we don't do aversive experiences very long before um, it starts to create some sense of burnout. And again, overtraining and burnout are not the same thing. Overtraining is I have pushed my body and my mind to the point where they need rest and recovery. Burnout comes as a result of creating conditions between myself and my craft that I cannot meet. And I do that over and over and over and over again until it burns me out. So perfectionism on the low end, but I think um, it can be more dangerous as we get better. I don't know that I've ever met a perfectionist who is on the top part of the learning curve who isn't finding more aversive effects of perfectionism than not. I mean, in the level of acceptance we generate from perfectionism is really, really low. And if you're trying to be really good at something, acceptance is uh, invaluable, right? And again, doesn't mean we like it, doesn't mean we're comfortable with it, doesn't mean we're satisfied with it, also doesn't mean we're stuck with it forever. But when we're trying to be perfect, we, we're trying to eject ourselves from anything that is not perfect. And that takes us out of our current reality. And again, it, it disrupts all kinds of things for long-term growth and really creates constriction and breadth when we are under pressure, which are you know basically the antithesis of stable confidence. Yeah, that's that's the best I've ever heard perfectionism talk about. <laughs> nice. Uh, so I got one more kind of question, and then I want to. I got a handful of listener questions, and and then we'll we'll hit the home stretch. But uh, should mental training be mandatory like should should it be first and then the physical parts tacked on on top like should you try to get the mental training as a foundation first and then now that you're in a good place mentally now that you understand your tendencies and what could happen then you'll be in a better place for the physical training what do you think about that there are three things that we can train. We can train our body, we can train our mind, and we can train our craft. And we, if you want to be really good at something, and by the way, also enjoy it as much as possible, which doesn't mean it's always going to be enjoyable, um, all three are required, right? So the, our psychology is part of the formula. It's a really important part, again, because everything else is uh, revolving around it, but it's not the only part. I don't know that I would ever make it mandatory. One of the things I do with clients, particularly when their parents call me and ask me to work with them or like a teenager is asking me like, is this something that you want to do? And if you're asking me like on a 
structural fundamental level, should we be doing this more? Yes, obviously, addressing our psychology. It improves everything else in our lives when our psychology is in a place that promotes those types of things, and it hurts everything else in our lives when it's not. However, I am an advocate of autonomy and agency, which is I get to make choices and exert influence over my life, which, by the way, is a psychological need for every human being on the planet. And when we are forced to do stuff kind of against our will, it's it's, um, it is inherently met with, with resistance, right? Because for every parent that goes, I need you to make my kid more mentally tough, there's a kid that's like, I, I don't want to do that, right? Or when, you know, typically when you uh, work with people at really high levels, like they are very much engaged. Like I want to do this partially because I need to in order to keep up or to get better or do whatever. Um, but I don't know that I would make it mandatory. I think making it available to people and being very welcoming about it is really um, probably the best approach right now, you know, was, for example, if you were working with high school players or, you know, high school aged players at your academy, you know, Hey, we're going to do a, a body scan mindfulness practice every Monday at this time, come on by not required, but whatever. And then if people do that because the great thing that happens as with training our body and our mind is if we're welcomed into it and we go, you know what, I'll do this because I want to, not because I have to, it's met with less resistance and that opens the chance for it to be a beneficial experience for us. And if that's the case, you know, it opens up, well, that was pretty good. I wonder what else there could be. And it starts to open things more. Um, but I don't know that requiring it um, is really important. I think it's kind of like going to the doctor. Like you can't make people go to the doctor unless they're signing a contract that says they need a physical to be able to transfer to a certain team or be traded or whatever. Um, so I don't know that making it, mandatory would help, but I think making it more available, more welcoming and better quality, more people would probably do it. Yeah. And on a, on a personal level, on a person by person basis, if you are averse to it, there's something going on there that you need to address and in making yourself more open to the idea of it is Back to the self-awareness piece, if you don't notice that you're having problems, you won't be able to fix those problems. So sure. on a personal level, you've got to make yourself available to it. There's something to be said about us just being open-minded to stuff and making sure that when we make conclusions about things, we are questioning those conclusions sometimes. you know, It's not uncommon that I, I run across swing coaches who have in no uncertain terms said they think I'm a snake oil salesman. And that, you know, psychology is not a thing and players just need to play better, period. Or if they have, quote unquote, mental scar tissue, um, there's nothing you can do about that. Only they can handle it on their own. There's no one that can help them with that. And they have a healthy distrust of this stuff. Some, some people do. And I don't blame them for having that healthy distrust for a couple of reasons. There's been a lot of really bad psychology offered, you know, quality of psychology services offered at in a lot of different places, right? So if the psychology is poor, the experience and the athlete are probably going to get worse. And then, of course, you would be like, this is a terrible thing. But also, just because one experience was really bad for somebody doesn't mean that they will all. So it's, it's again, like you said, it's that self-awareness of here's the conclusion I have made about blank. And um, what is it that's causing me to make this conclusion? And, and remembering that even our core beliefs about stuff are our most central ideas about something not necessarily the thing itself or factual, you know, one of the things that I would uh, kind of liken it to right now is there's everybody is 
chasing speed. And there are some people who are super resistant to it. You know, the game should be played this way. You can't like da da da. And it's important for us to be able to, like, why do I think that way? Right. And those are difficult questions to answer sometimes, but there is a certain amount of um, readiness for change that is important for us uh, if we're going to do things that are addressing our psychology and not everybody's there yet. And that's what I like about mental golf show listeners. They're all open-minded because they wouldn't be here if they weren't. Right. (laughs) Okay. So I've got some listener questions. Um, This one comes from Trey on Instagram. Uh, When going through a swing change, how do you stay patient and trust that it will work? Again, so this is kind of addressing your uh, relationship with growth and certainty. If you're making a swing change, there is no certainty that it will work the way you want it to. Um, And so addressing like really asking yourself, is it worth me making this change anyway, knowing that it might not exactly lead to what I want, but it probably will. So I would encourage him to think about what are the swing changes you're making and why, which would make it worth it for you to do that, knowing that you're not really exactly sure how it's going to work out. So you might consider those questions. And then the second part is the patience part is really important. And it's not some mystical, okay, be patient, whatever. Patience is the fastest route to change. All these quick fixes and quick changes and surface level stuff, whether it's physical, you know, mental or other are what happens is we do like, think about it like a, uh, like a fad diet. You do it. It doesn't work. Now you're still back at square one. Like the fastest way to lose weight is to be really consistent with your exercise and your diet in ways that are healthy. The fastest way to make a swing change is to take the slow road, which is I'm going to do it from a fundamental. I'm going to sequence these things in the way that it needs to be sequenced and learn them, master them before I move to the next thing, et cetera. That's the fastest way to make a swing change. It's just not as fast as we would like it to be. So it's a part of like, okay, I'm going to be patient one, because that's what's the fastest way for me to make a swing change. And the second, it makes it most likely to be successful. And it also provides us the feedback we need to be able to go, do I want to keep doing this? Right. Cause you might get two months into that and be like, this isn't going to do it. But unless you are patient with that and give it the due diligence, you're not going to find that out. Cause you'll just jump from one thing to the next thing. Like impatience is plagues a lot of golfers. They'll go, Oh, I did this. It didn't work out for 15 minutes. And then I jumped to something else. And then you've just done a practice session where you have not committed to something long enough to actually find out if it works. Patience is a longer road. It is still the shortest road to significant and sustainable change. That's I love that. Patience is a longer road, but it's the shortest road. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so Morgan on Instagram, how many times in a round of golf does the mind lose focus? Because four or five hours is a long time. Yeah, the number could be innumerable. Like our, our brain is designed to be able to jump from stimuli to stimuli. Right. Stimuli means just like from thing to thing, because that's what helped us stay vigilant and not get eaten by something or to find the things we needed to survive. So the idea you're going to go a round of golf and your focus isn't going to shift at times is um, an ir- like a, ir- a reckless standard, to be honest with you. Um, what's more important is that we start to develop the ability to recognize when it shifts and be able to bring it back to the present moment for as long as as we need it. And by the way, to play really good golf, you do not need to be focused on the present moment for five hours. You need to be focused on the present for a minute to 30 seconds at a time as you're playing your shots. 
And the great news is the more we train our ability to recognize when we're not present or we're not focused on the thing that we're actually doing when we're doing it, and we refocus in that way. So we would think of this as a mindful, like a single point mindfulness practice. The more our brain starts to go, you know what, being present is really nice. And it wants to be present more often. It starts to become our default setting. Doesn't mean we won't think about the past. Doesn't mean we won't think about the future. Doesn't mean our thoughts won't wander at times, which they will. It just means we're present more often. And when we train that ability systematically, so again, this would be like a single point mindfulness practice that becomes um, more of a default setting. And then it's also not a problem if we have thoughts that are off time because we go, oh, that's me thinking about something that I'm not doing right now. Not a problem because I know how to bring myself back to the thing that I'm doing. Um, And that's really important. So there's a study from Harvard like 12 or so years ago where researchers asked people, they had a nap and they asked people, what are you thinking about? No, where are you? Or what are you doing? What are you thinking about? And by the way, how happy are you? And what they found was about half the time we are just in wandering thought. But when we are present, that really improves the quality of our experience. So you would, that impacted how enjoyable something was more than the thing that we were actually doing. So if you were taking out the garbage, but really present with it, that experience would be better than playing golf if your mind is wandering around the whole time, right? And so ultimately, if we train ourselves to recognize when we're not present and allow ourselves to be present more often, the quality of the experience improves. And by the way, the things that we enjoy tend to draw our focus and we become more focused while we're doing them. Um, And I would say the idea that you're not going to have deviating thoughts, probably not a a realistic expectation, but being able to ground yourself is, and that's trained through kind of a single point mindfulness practice. And also just understanding the intention is if I'm going to be here, I want to be here, right? We are always physically present in the moment we're in. Sometimes it's as simple as us just being like, if I'm going to be here, like, how about be here, right? And not continually forever, because that's not going to happen, but as often as I can and um, be non-judgmental about that, meaning when our thoughts and um, and our experience, inner experience kind of shifts away from that, not going, oh, shoot, you're supposed to be present, you idiot, be more present, but just being like, hey, that was me wandering over here. How about what's in front of me right now? Uh, starts to train us to be present more often. So a a good day taking out trash is better than a bad day on the golf course, right? I would say a present being grounded, taking out the trash has a very high likelihood of being more enjoyable than playing golf through five hours of wandering thought. Got it. (laughs) That's good. Being present is also important for our competence because we're not very good at things when we are multitasking, right? So if we are in wandering thought while also trying to play golf, we're not as good at either of those tasks, which means we're going to play worse golf and be worse at wandering our thoughts. And hence why it's not very enjoyable, not just because we're in wandering thought, but also we're worse at what we're doing. And by the way, playing better golf is a lot more enjoyable than playing not as good golf. Yeah. Well said. Okay. Another question. Two more. What can players do to unintentionally impede their progress? That's kind of vague, open-ended. There's a million things, but the answer is a lot of things. Um, yeah, that's a loaded question. There a lot is the answer. So I'll give a couple specifics. The first is not being grounded in the present moment. I mean, that is almost a surefire way to, um, disrupt anything, whether that's learning long-term growth, 
our practice, how we actually compete and play, it disrupts our confidence. You know, even if we're thinking about flow state, you know, one of the characteristics of flow state is uh, immersion in the task at hand as it's happening, right? We, we perform better when we're on time. We also learn more efficiently when we're on time, on time being not in the past and not in the present or not in the future, but in the present, we are on time with our life and performance as it's happening. So that's one for sure. Um, really being mindful of our habits. Mindful, I use this word, is aware, but a specific type of awareness. Mindful awareness is built on three pillars, which is intention, groundedness, and acceptance. And that's a whole podcast for another episode. But when we bring that level of attention and awareness, we process information more efficiently. So it increases our ability to learn in the long term and also increases our ability to adapt to whatever our current um, reality is. And then understanding the foundations of building stable confidence. And again, stable confidence is not built on certainty and comfort. It's built on a sense of space and a, a sense of acceptance. And when we have those, we stay out of our own way, right? By definition, getting in your own way is I'm taking something that I'm doing, I'm making it harder than it needs to be. When our confidence is unstable, oftentimes what's happening is we are creating rules that have to happen that don't actually exist. And we are creating consequences for missing those actions or those constraints that don't actually exist either. For example, we might say, I have to hit the first fairway in order to have a good round of golf. There's no rule anywhere that says you have to hit the first fairway. By the way, it's more helpful to be in the fairway than it is anywhere else, but we don't have to. And by the way, uh, no round of golf has ever been contingent upon one single shot to start your round. So we're creating, again, constraints that don't really exist. The less the more we're aware of when we're doing that and then remove those where we are just testing our ability against the actual constraints in front of us, the more we're staying out of our own way and the more we can be present with that. And the more we can be aware of the things that we're doing that are making that more difficult or less difficult. Like uh, when we stay out of our own way, it doesn't mean the thing that we're doing gets easier. It means we're not making it harder than it actually is. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I don't know if anyone's ever said that in that way. That's awesome. Uh, you could probably answer this next one the same way you just answered that one, but what do high performers do differently than average performers? Well, that's a bit of a loaded question too. I would say also they tend to not get in their own way as much, but not all the time. Part of it is they're just really good at something and they've developed that company. So if we think about really high performance. It is a marriage of competency and confidence, right? They don't always have, sometimes people have an immense level of competence, but not very stable confidence and vice versa, where someone had, like, if we think back to my example with my college teammates, one dude, crazy level of competence, unstable confidence. Uh, one dude, crazy stable confidence, moderately competent, right? And the kind of the ratios of those two will figure out how we perform better. But what's also really clear about high performers, there are a couple of things. The first is they are more, and this is going to come as a shock to some people, they are more intrinsically motivated than they are extrinsically motivated. People who are intrinsically motivated, meaning I'm doing something simply because I want to do it and it's an enjoyable experience to me. Not that it doesn't come without frustration or um disappointment at times, but because like, I just really want to do it and get better at it, have longer, more fulfilling and more successful careers. However, they define success. 
as opposed to I just have this series of outcome-based goals that I'm chasing. Every human being is both intrinsically and extrinsically motivated. But if we are relying only on outcomes to motivate us, like I have to get my handicap to this level or I shoot this score or win a major, that motivator by its extrinsic nature cannot sustain the type of motivation to sustain the type of effort required to continually get better. So one of the things we do is be more intrinsically motivated. And that comes really from having less of a chokehold on goals and more of a connection to the things that make golf and getting better at it meaningful to you. Right. So they are more intrinsically motivated. Typically they practice way better than people who don't. And by way better, I mean, they practice deliberately which is a very systematic cycle of I have one thing that I'm working on, a metric or a sensation or something that tells me, did I actually do that? Um, Accurate and timely feedback about that. I reflect on it oftentimes with the help of an expert, like a coach or an instructor. And then I rinse and repeat a lot. Right. And so hence, that's the patient approach to getting better. But patient approach, like just going and working hard aimlessly doesn't typically get us at a very high achieving level. The quality of our practice matters just as much as the quantity of it. So intrinsic motivation, quality of practice, and also just on a fundamental level, people who achieve at a really high level, uh, they're not leaving the third leg of performance. So they take care of their body, they take care of their mind, and they, and they take care of their uh, craft. So they're learning all the strategies involved and playing, they're playing the long game, not the short game. They're not looking for quick fixes. They're looking for what's the truth. What are the real mechanisms behind it? Um, what are the things that other people who are really successful doing? Not in a like, oh, I found some magic wand type of thing, but like really looking at what are the building blocks for sustaining success in my craft, the strategies, the training methods, the psychology, et cetera. And they're committing to those largely because they just want to get better and by the way, want to win and, and get some really good results. And when you have that combination, um, you're going to find out how good you are. Uh, it might not be exactly what you want, but you're going to find out where the end of the learning curve is for you. Mm. Great. Okay. So I, I always ask the same question at the end of every episode. It's a silly question, but I like to hear people's answers to it because it brings out, brings out good answers. What percent of golf or high achievement in general, but this is the mental golf show. So golf, what percent of golf is mental and what percent is physical? I don't know. Um, that's a really good question. It might be 99% mental and 1% physical. It might be 1% mental and 99% physical. Both are really important. What I would just say is whether our psychology makes up 1% or 99% of our performance, it is the percent that all the other stuff is revolving around. So whether like the amount of percent that it makes up in our performance is not really relevant. What's relevant is without it, we don't open the doors to everything else. Like let's say you have the best core strategy in the world. If you're playing golf anxiously, which comes from your psychology, you're not gonna be able to implement that system. Let's say you have grooved the best swing in the world and you can hit the ball a mile and hit it straighter than I can point. If you're making tentative scared swings and dwelling on mistakes, et cetera, it doesn't matter. I mean, it matters because it's nice to be better at something than not, but you're not gonna get the most out of it. So what percent 
I don't really think it matters. Um, the bottom line is it, it just, it matters. <laughs> well said. <laughs> There's no good answer to that question, but that was a great answer. <laughs> All right, everyone, hope you enjoyed this classic conversation with Raymond. I just love the way he comes at things from a deeper level through things like the habit process in relation to moving on from bad shots or anger or impatience or any other unhelpful mental habit. I hope you took notes and came away with some of the same insights I did. Raymond Pryor has been instrumental in my mentality changing. And I think that's due to like how many times I've listened to him talk. I've listened to his episodes that he and I have recorded together dozens of times probably at this point. And I've also read what he's writ- written dozens of times. It's just I, I kind of soak myself in, in the way he talks about things because he's so smart and well-read and well-researched. So I, I hope you're able to do the same thing. And speaking of reading what he's written, he released his book, Golf Beneath the Surface, earlier this year. It's easily the best golf book I've ever read. So you should read that ASAP. The link to purchase his book and get in touch with Raymond Pryor will be in the show notes of this episode. And if you liked this episode, you'll probably like the other three episodes that I've had Dr. Pryor on. Highly recommend you go check those out. Just go to the Mental Golf Show on your podcast app, start scrolling, and you'll see them, I promise. And as I always mention at the end of these episodes, what you've heard isn't therapy. It's meant for information and entertainment purposes only. If you feel like you need personal help on some deeper things you're going through, I encourage you to go talk to a licensed professional. But on the golf psychology front, if you feel like what you've heard doesn't quite cut it and you'd like to work one-on-one with someone, I'm a golf psychology coach. I work with players all over the world on improving their minds so they can improve their performance on the course. If you'd like to get in touch with me, feel free to send an email to mentalgolfshow at gmail.com, or you can visit my website, joshnicholsgolf.com. Or again, if you'd like a less formal intro where you don't even need to talk to me, you could take the mental game assessment. It's a hand-created assessment that was created by my instructor, Robert Limville, and I. It takes about 15 minutes uh, to, to take, and it will give you your mental strengths and areas for improvement. And again, the best part is it's free. The link to everything I've mentioned will be in the show notes of this episode. All right. Thanks again to everybody who listens to the Mental Golf Show. Whether you're new here or you've been here since day one, I really appreciate the community that you have been a part of building. If you've learned something on this episode, go subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Maybe mention the biggest thing you've learned in the conversations that I've had with uh, Dr. Pryor. I've, I could list probably 40 things. And so try to pick out one. And when you go leave your review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and you leave that five-star review, put what you've learned from him or any other episode. I know you've gotten some good takeaways. So go leave a review and, and jot down some things that you've learned. It can help other people realize that they also can learn something from The Mental Golf Show. Okay, thanks for listening to The Mental Golf Show. I'm Josh Nichols, and I will catch you guys next time.